if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter, 2 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 7. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. We'll read um, the first uh, 17 verses, um, and uh, then we will, uh, yeah, and then Lord willing, next week we'll pick up in verse 18 and finish the chapter out. But um, Second Samuel chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 1, going through um, verse 17. And if you're physically able to do so, do let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. Second Samuel chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord that is given to us this morning. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Shall you build me a house? Shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelled in any house since that time, since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build you not me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be the ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight and have made you a great name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you which will proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If, I can, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we praise you for your word this morning. Our prayer now is that we would give great attention to you and to your word and what you, have, what you teach us here. And this morning we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So contracts, I think none of us need a, um, any sort of uh, introduction to contracts. If we've been around for any sort amount or amount of time, we all know uh, the importance of contracts, uh, contracts in business, contracts in government, contracts in our personal lives. I mean, think about it, right? Think about all the contracts that we sign on a, on a, on a regular basis, whether it was for our cell phones, for our Internet service, for our electric bill. 
uh, for any type of service that we get. We want contracts because we want to make sure that we are protected and that, that uh, they render the service that they promise to, right? This is, this is true. Whenever we are getting any sort of, of repairs done on our home, we get a contract. We want to make sure that things are right. Things are done right and both parties are protected. And we even make implicit contracts on a rather regular basis, don't we? Think, think about it this way. There, is a, there are implicit contracts that exist between friends. Right? If you say you're my friend, if I say I'm your friend, there are implicit contracts that we make to make sure that you know what it means to be my friend and I know what it means to be your friend. And ultimately, I'm not going to violate that. Right? You're not going to violate that contract with me unless you just don't want to be my friend anymore. Or I don't simply want to be your friend anymore. And I think that without contracts, both explicit and implicit in our lives and our work, the world could quickly unravel because people could just cheat each other and there would be no recourse whatsoever, no legal recourse whatsoever, uh, no, no, uh, no uh, civil court that would hear our, our claims of, of being defrauded or whatever. But God structures our relationships in, in this way. Sort of, and I'll get, I'll get to what, what I mean by that. Because God structures not just our relationships with one another like that. He also structures his relationship with us through a distinctive type, uh, brand. Uh, that's not the right word, type of, of quote-unquote contract, if you will. Um, and, and regularly throughout the Bible, we see this. And generally, the word we see for this, that we see in Scripture, is the word covenant. It is a covenant. It's a type of contract. It's not an exact contract like we think of contracts. There were some other differences, but, but that's the closest, I think, that we can come to understanding the Old Testament understanding of a covenant and the, the understanding of what it meant to enter into a covenant, right? God's covenants throughout Scripture have always been binding and, and on, on, on us and on God. And, and the interesting thing is that God does this not because he is ob obligated to do this, but he enters into these covenants willingly. He enters into these covenants willingly. And I think it is interesting because as you travel through Scripture, you see that the first explicit contract in all of Scripture is made through, through Adam and made to Adam. And to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, there's a, there's a covenant that is entered into with, with them, right? And it, it, after that, the, the next explicit covenant that we, that we enter into, uh, where the, actually the, the name covenant is used, that is in the Noah, with Noah and, and, and the talk and discussion with Noah. Noah says, or God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And then in Genesis 9, God proceeds to lay out the specifics of this covenant to then ratify and signify and bind this covenant of his own accord and his own will. And we see that simply by God's promise to Noah when he says in Genesis 9, 13, that he has set his bow in the clouds. His war bow has been hung up, no longer pointing to mankind, but now pointing directly to the heart of heaven, pointing us to the ultimate one who would hang up the war bow, Jesus, his son. But like all biblical covenants, whether we're talking about God's covenant with Adam or God's covenant with David or God's covenant with Moses or God's covenant with Noah or even the new covenant, right? All of these have been initiated by God, all of them. There's not a single 
covenant that was ever initiated by a human being. This is all God's doing. He establishes the covenant. He establishes the parameters of these covenants, of these relationships. And we simply enter in response to what God has already declared. And so the covenants in the Old Testament consistently underscore one thing, and that is God's sovereignty and God's sovereign rule over all of life in every way. And they even point us to the new covenant, don't they? Because the new covenant was promised to us in Jeremiah 31, 31, when we're told that God would set up a new covenant. And so we know that even in Christ, God relates to us in covenant, in relationship. And he talks to us in in a way that we understand. And so this morning, what I want to do is, because covenants probably seem so... Uh, irregular to us or we don't fully understand them because we're not living in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we do need to understand that what God is doing here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is establishing the Davidic covenant. We are, he is establishing his covenant with David. And so what I want to do is I want to show you two, I think, fundamental truths about this covenant that God establishes with David and how it relates to us. So here's number one, the context of the covenant. The context of the covenant is just found in verses 1 through 9. It's found in verses 1 through 9. Now, last week we talked about who God is, his character, and his nature that was revealed in this text of passage, or this, this text in this passage of Scripture. But this week what I want to do is I want to, to just, I want to use that then to springboard off of and show why God creates this covenant. Because God is sovereign, because God is, uh, because God is gracious, because God is who he is, God chooses to willingly enter into covenant relationship with human beings. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And so let me tell you, let me show you first and foremost, uh, God's covenant faithfulness. Look what what God says to to, uh, David here, but even before that, look look at David's desire and what drove David's desire. Listen to how David speaks to the prophet Nathan. And he says, <clears throat> see, I, verse 2, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And so God has, or David has it in his heart that, God, that he wants to build something for God. He has seen God's faithfulness in his covenant to his people throughout, throughout, throughout his life and even before, prior, time and time and time again. David knows, knows full well of God's covenant with Adam. David would have been instructed in this. God would, have, uh, God would have made sure David was instructed in God's covenant with Noah and even with the, Mosa- with the Mosaic covenant, with the covenant with Moses. But now God is doing something just a little different by entering into a covenant with David. Because listen to what this chronicler who tells us first in 1 Chronicles gives us a little bit, a little bit of a different scenario or a little bit of a different, uh, or at least a, a, a look into David's mind a little deeper in 1 Chronicles 14.2 when it says, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people. That's God's people, right? And so it gives us a little bit more. So because God had established David, David responds by saying, I want to do something for God. I want to honor God. I want to praise God. I want to bless God. I want to be faithful to show my my praise and my worship and my honor of God. And it's interesting, though, that David even has a concept of this, even going back to 1 Samuel. David, David knows, he doesn't quite, it doesn't, David doesn't seem to know quite what God is doing, right? 
But David knows that God is doing something. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you go back, I'm not going to take you back there, so if you want to, you can look it up later. But in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David actually speaks in that chapter of God's covenant faithfulness to him. How can David speak of God's covenant faithfulness to him when he hasn't made a covenant with him yet? And how is that possible? What covenant could, could David possibly be talking about? Well, ultimately, he's speaking in reference to the fact that God has been faithful to him and, his, and God's people by giving them the covenant that he gave through Moses. And the Ark of the Covenant that was clearly at the heart of this covenant was, was made by God right by, by giving instructions to Moses. And it exists at the heart of this. And so David can say this because he sees God's faithfulness in allowing them as God's people to continue to experience God's presence in their lives and in their worship. They are allowed to continue to see the presence of God in their midst as the nation of Israel. And it's interesting, though, that as, as we look at this, and I hope all this will make more sense, because I'm not just giving you information here. I, this, I, I, this is going to make sense here in just a few moments, I think. But, but, but understand that as we think about this, right, when God makes a covenant in Scripture, he doesn't just start over. Instead, each covenant continues and builds and expands upon the previous covenants, and so this is why they, uh, Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, Brethren, I speak in a manner of men, though it, is only, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, say and to the seeds, the plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So God did not, in giving the Mosaic covenant, annul God's ultimate promise that was given to God's people through the seed of Abraham. Paul makes this very clear. Right? The, the law was given to instruct us, and the law was given to remind us of our inability to keep the law, our inability to be faithful to God, to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful in his worship. Right? And, and, and I know we, a lot of us would probably say, man, if I was there, I would have done things differently. Well, listen, they had God's presence dwelling, right? They saw the cloud, they saw the fire, they saw the smoke, they saw, they saw God's presence. They had everything, they heard the quaking and the shaking, and they still were faithless. Because ultimately, the covenant rested not in the keeping of the law, but in Christ who would come and keep the law. And this is the promise that God gives to David here. When God creates this covenant with David, he is ultimately pulling back to the Abrahamic covenant, to the, to the covenant that God makes with Abraham in, in chapter 12 and chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. And he's pulling from that to remind David and the nation of Israel, there is still one that is coming. There is still one that is coming that will ultimately fulfill the covenant, that will ultimately do what I have promised to do. So think about the ramifications for just a minute. The Ten Commandments, right? 
So, so think about this. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, right, were stored inside the ark. And the ark was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. This means that at the heart of the covenant, even with Moses, law and grace were always knit together, pointing us to the greater covenant God would keep through his son, Jesus. A lot of times today, we as Christians try to put a wall between law and the gospel by failing to see that the natural relationship that exists, right? But, but law and gospel have always been, the, have been at the core of every covenant, always pointing us to Christ. Literally, what I'm saying is that though they did not know it, though they did not understand it, which Paul makes very clear in his writings, there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of gospel symbols that they had access to in the Old Covenant. They were surrounded by gospel symbols that continually and constantly pointed them to one who was coming who was greater, Jesus, the Messiah. But because because it had not fully been revealed yet, they were unable to fully see it. But God's covenant faithfulness does lead then to a response and a desire though, right? To bless God, to praise God. And that's what David says. David says, look, God, you have been so good and so faithful and so loving and so kind. How can I help but not build something for you? And so in that sense, we see a couple of things come out of the heart of David. And ultimately, all of them proceed from a heart of thankfulness, don't they? They all proceed from a heart of thankfulness. And so we can say that a thankful heart focuses on God. I mean, that's what David's heart was focused on. He saw God and what God had done and responded. But he also focused his heart in thankfulness, was submitted to God, because instead of like Saul, who tried to go out and who did go out and build himself lots and lots of, 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 uh, of statues and other things to be set up and to be, wor- uh, not worship, but set up to be in awe of, David doesn't go build statues for himself. David builds, wants to build a house for God. And so David's heart is submitted to God. He loves God. He is overwhelmed, right? God has placed within David a thankful heart that is overwhelmed by God and God's faithfulness, not just to him, but to the nation of Israel. And you see, when we're looking at this, we cannot pass over the fact that the temple and the covenant were all of God's grace, every bit of it. Yes, David was sincere in his desire to build God's temple. Yes, David wants to only honor the Lord. Yes, David is God's servant. Right in verse 5, it's very clear. It speaks of my servant Abraham in Genesis 26, 24, thus aligning David with Abraham. And in Numbers 12, 8, this is on the same par with Moses in Numbers 12, 12, 8, where it says, my servant Moses. And in Numbers 14, 24, it places David even on the same level as Caleb being called my servant Caleb in Numbers 14, 24. But even more importantly than that, this ultimately points us to what Isaiah prophesies of in chapter 42, 49, and 52 in the book of Isaiah when he calls Jesus Christ his servant. The Messiah would be my servant, the Lord says. But in waiting, in waiting and teaching us, we need to understand that this this temple complex, the tabernacle, all of this flowed from God's grace. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. 
right? The temple plans, right? Could not come from, must not come from, from David, but from heaven. That's why God ultimately says to David, says, David, no, you, thank you for your desire, but no, uh, I still have my plans and my desires that must be honored and praised. And so you will not do this. I will be the one to give the temple plans. And God says very clearly that he has, he would though exalt David, right? Has exalted him and will continue to do so throughout his, his service and he accomplishes great things for God's glory. All of this ultimately <clears throat> teaches us that it is, it is God and not us, God and not David, who must, who must declare these parameters in which we enter into a covenant with him. In other words, this is why today we can't be quote-unquote tolerant enough that we do not proclaim and lift up the name of Jesus and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a culture who hates God the gospel. We cannot, we cannot shy away from preaching King Jesus. We cannot shy away from preaching that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We cannot shy away from honoring Christ in this, this depraved and wicked generation. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot uh, fall back from, from God's call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying, oh, well, you know, just as long as you're sincere, or just as long as you think it's okay, or just as long as you do it really, really well and really, really sincerely, everybody's going to heaven. No, that's not the gospel, and we can't shy away from the gospel. We must, we must call sinners to understand, like we were called to, to understand that it is God that sets the parameters of grace. It is God that sets the parameters of salvation, and not us. But then we have... I think, the provisions of this covenant, beginning in verse 10. And I think this is really interesting as we, as we think through this, because there's several provisions that God gives in, in the covenant. And, and some of these go, back to, to, uh, these go back to Abraham, and there's a reiteration of the Abrahamic promise. Because the first thing God tells David is that he's going to give his people a land. Right? That's what, what he says here. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, right? He has done that, and they have entered into that land, and they are now at rest. Finally, at long last, they are at rest. But he also promises them safety, doesn't he? That's what he says, that, they'll, that, that, that in this time of peace and safety and rest, which will extend past David's lifetime, they are going to experience peace and safety and no longer be afflicted by the children of wickedness, right? The Ammonite, the, the, the Philistine, and all the rest of them, the Moabites, they are, they, are, they are now placed out of the picture. And God promises, though, in all of this, he goes on and he promises a dynasty or a house for David in verses 11 through 16, doesn't he? God, it's interesting because David comes to God and he says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, David. And David responds in the only way that he can with absolute as we'll see uh, later in the chapter, he responds in absolute just worship for who God is and what he has done. By the way, there really is an intriguing play on words here that we don't quite get in our English translation. But in, in, in the Hebrew, when it says, when it talks about building David a house, right, this can, this can literally mean, so David, you want to build me a house, a temple, but I'm going to build you a literal dynasty so there's a play on words here that God uses sort of like the like we think of 
the House of Windsor or some other royal dynasty in, in England or, or elsewhere. This is what God is promising David. He's using this play on words. David, you want to build me a house? You want to build me a temple? Well, I'm going to do greater than that. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And, and David is, is honored and, 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 and just is in awe of what God has done. But it is amazing, right? It is amazing as we think through this, we think through this, we, we see how the, how the apostles actually apply this. Because in Acts chapter 15, verses 13 through 18, the apostles actually quote this and talk about this and reference this, of David's dynasty that ultimately pointed to David's greater son, Jesus, the Messiah. Listen to how the apostles talk about this in Acts 15, verse 13 through 18. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written, After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And he goes on, it says, known to God from eternity are all his works. So the apostles actually apply this promise and actually apply it not to Solomon, but to David, but to, and, or even to David, or even any of Solomon's sons or daughters, but rather to King Jesus. And this is the promise then that, that brings us to the next promise that God makes, which is in verse 16. Listen to what he says. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How is that possible? Well, you would quickly say, well, that just means that David would always have a son sitting on the throne. And so there would just be a never end to the throne of David. Well, then God lied. Because Israel went into exile. If we only apply this to the line of David or to the line and lineage of David through, through the literal understanding of Solomon. But that's not how the New Testament understands God's promise here. It says, later in the New Testament, Men and brethren, let me speak freely of you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of the body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, or hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which we, is, which we see now, we now see and hear. By the way, Hades meant, meant grave, not hell, I apologize grave for David did not ascend the heavens but he says himself the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make my make your enemies my footstool therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ which is why even here in 2nd Samuel 7 this ultimately obviously points us to Jesus you say well now what do you mean well, isn't it interesting that we understand that it is, Jesus is the greater fulfillment and that he says, Jesus himself says he is the greater temple. He makes these statements in Matthew 26, Matthew 27, Mark 14, Mark 15, John 2, and Acts 15, 
all of these, Jesus relates to himself. Jesus himself proclaims that he possesses the eternal throne in Matthew 19, Luke 1, Revelation 11, and Revelation 22. Jesus says that he possesses an imperishable kingdom in Luke 1, in Luke 22, and in John 18. And Jesus himself says he is the Son of God in Mark 1, Luke 1, John 20, Acts 9, Hebrews 1, Matthew 27, and Luke 22. What's my point? My point is this. This was not a promise of so- to Solomon. Because Jesus is the biological son of David through whom? Not Solomon, though he was adopted into that line through Nathan. If you don't believe me, look up Matthew 1, 6, 16, 3, 23, and 32, and Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30. In other words, Jesus was adopted by Joseph as his biological son, thus giving him the right of the rule and the reign through Solomon. But ultimately, the promise comes through David, through Nathan. And this is why the virgin birth is so necessary. Because though both David and Solomon's throne are said to be forever, only David's seed and David's house is said to be ruled by that throne forever. And no such promise is ever made to Solomon or any of Solomon's children. Solomon is actually said in 1 Chronicles 29-23 to say that Solomon sat on, get this, the throne of the Lord the throne of Yahweh, the throne of the Lord. Not his throne, Yahweh's throne as king instead of David, his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And so ultimately, in this promise, this promise isn't to a physical, this promise isn't isn't to Solomon's seed who will come after him. Because it says in Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, listen to what it says, as I live, says the Lord, Though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die, but to the land to which they desire to return, there shall not return." Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into the land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Solomon was, in fact, chastened by the rod of men. To that, God had remained, remained faithful in his promise. However, it is Jesus who bears the wrath and the rod of God for the afflictions of his people. And in the Gospels, they make a distinction. Matthew presents Joseph's genealogy, right? And therefore, by right of adoption through Joseph, Jesus has the right to the royal throne biologically physically, but Luke presents Jesus' physical lineage through Mary, who was a descendant of Nathan, and therefore he is able to hold the long-promised fulfillment of God's promise to David. So, 
how do we pull all this together, right? Because you're saying, well, that's, that, that was really cool, uh, maybe, if you're not asleep. You're saying, maybe, maybe that was cool, right? But how do we pull all this together like this? God created a covenant through, the, through David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the new covenant, and in fact was a new covenant. It doesn't just simply fulfill the previous covenants, right? But in fact was a new covenant that was given fully, freely in Christ. And as a result then, our inheritance, if we are in Christ, our inheritance is, listen to me, not just in Christ, but our inheritance has now become God himself. Christ is our inheritance, and we are his. And therefore, we receive benefits from Christ, not just forgiveness of sins, not just eternal life, though that's certainly, right, these, these certain things are certainly true, but other promises, promises like living in the new heaven and the new earth, living in the presence of King Jesus and the Father and the Spirit forever and ever, worshiping King Jesus, worshiping the Father, worshiping the Holy Spirit forever, serving the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their presence forever, in His presence forever and ever. We receive all of the blessings that are ours in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. But I think that in saying that, I think there are two exhortations and two warnings here as well. First, let me give you the warnings. First, it took the death of Jesus to redeem man. Because man, apart from Christ, apart from God's sacrifice, was unredeemable. Which, at the end of the day, shows sin's absolute seriousness. Right? It shows us that rightly understood, we who respond by God's grace and enter into by grace God's work and God's covenant, we enter into this not because of our works, but because of God's grace. And it leads us then not to greater wickedness or sin, but it causes us to turn and to repent of it. And I think in the end of the day, we have to be careful. I think the second warning, so the first warning is to be careful that we rightly understand how we're saved and why we're saved. And the the second is that we don't run into the ditch of either as a result of this, we can do whatever we want or we have to live so legalistically that we can barely breathe. After all, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is Christ. And so in that, let me say there are two exhortations here, two encouragements to us as a congregation. First, if you are apart from Christ, if you are here this morning apart from Christ, never having entered into a relationship with Christ, my prayer is that God would cause you to tremble at his grace. And that he would cause you to tremble at the absolute infinite offense that you have given to a holy God. That your your unholy, rebellious, cosmic sin would lead you not to flee from Christ, but rather to Christ by grace through faith. That you would repent of your sins, you would turn to Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, let me say this. God's grace has been infinite to us. I do not believe that we will ever fully understand the infiniteness of God's grace to us. Not now, not in heaven, never. 
I believe that we will never fully understand the infinite nature of the grace of God toward us who are in Christ and the measures that he took to bring us to faith in Christ. And so this morning, for those of you here who may be weak and broken and perhaps even doubting God's goodness and God's grace, let me encourage you to flee to the one who comforts us in Christ. Let me encourage you to find your comfort and your relief in Jesus, who is the greater son of David, who died upon the cross and rose again on the third day and now sits at the right hand of God in power and saves sinners. Let us flee to him who is merciful and gracious, the sustainer and savior of our souls. We may be weak, but if Christ dwells within us, Christ has taken possession of us. And we can find the fullness of his joy and his rest for our souls only in Christ. But we won't just find peace there or grace there, but rather peace and grace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. And in Christ, believer, let me remind you that we have all received of the joy of his fullness and of his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who now empowers us, who comforts us, who encourages us, who rebukes us, who aids us and helps us in our obedience to Christ. Flee to Christ, the comforter of your soul and David's greater son who died for our sins and fulfilled the covenant God made with David. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we come thankful so much for your grace, thankful for your mercy. God, thank you for the text that you have set before us and the promises you gave through David, to David, through, through Jesus, ultimately pointing us obviously to Jesus, the greater son of David who would die to redeem the people of God upon the cross and through his resurrection asserts all of his power and authority. So, O oh God, help us, guide us, direct us now, we pray, that our hearts, though they may be weak and frail and fragile and hurting, Grant us grace, Father, that we may find our comfort in Christ. May you hold us fast, Father, for your glory through the Son, Jesus. May you grant us the peace that, un that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. And so now, Lord Jesus, we who are here respond to you as we sing. May you draw sinners to, your, to yourself. And we pray that you would be glorified now in Jesus' name.